Good morning, Stonebridge. I do want to just, before I jump into my sermon today, just kind of discuss what we all know is going on in the world around us. I think you'd have to be living in a box to not hear what's going on in our own world, in our own country here down in Houston. And I hope you guys have all been praying for that diligently throughout the week. They say that's one of the biggest disasters to hit American soil. And so I hope you guys all are praying nonstop for that. Uh, we as a leadership team here at Stonebridge, we've been emailing back and forth all week long, and, and we decided that we would like to give from your tithe money some of the balance of what we have for a missions budget to go towards relief fund for Houston. And so we're going to be donating some of that money to the Houston Relief. So money that you guys have been giving is actually going to help out with that. And so I would like to just take some time now to pray for that as well. And if any of you, obviously, it's always a struggle. I know as I get on Facebook, I get that big red cross thing right at the top. And we always feel instantly called to just give, 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 give. And I know I personally, like, well, is this a good one? Is this a good? I, I don't know. I don't ever know if a certain charity is good or not, because they all seem great to me. And so that was something we were kind of struggling with as, as a group, too. And so we found some really great charities to give to, too. So if that's something you're kind of wanting to do and you feel called to give in excess, talk to one of the leaders here, and we can help point you in the right direction, too a group that 100% of what you give will go directly to the people that are hurting. So just let me pray for Houston now as I start. Father, whenever tragedy strikes, it causes us to just stop. Your power and your majesty, you are in control of these storms and they they display your, your awesomeness. And the destruction that comes is It's sad for us, but just like Matt preached two weeks ago, your hand of sovereignty comes through tragedy. And so I pray for the people that are displaced, the people who are hurting, the people who have lost lost loved ones, that they can cling to you in these moments. They can reach out to you. I pray for the relief workers that are going down to Houston and the other areas that are being affected God, that they can just speak words of truth, speak words of love and grace coming from you. Help point the people that are hurting and lost back to your love. That is what we all truly need. In these moments, we we see that we need to give money and we need to help build houses. And that is all true. But in the end, we truly need your love and your grace and your mercy pouring out on us. And so I just pray that we as as a church can continue to help those in need, whether it's here in our local community, in the nation as a whole, or around the world. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, my family and I are very excited to be joining Stonebridge, and I just want to let you know we have felt just so incredibly blessed and welcomed over the past couple of weeks and just so spiritually encouraged just the number of people that have been coming up to us and just tell us that they have been praying for us before we even knew to be praying for ourselves through this transition. I can't, I can't even explain how many times I've gotten that 
response, like, we were praying for you before you even knew it. I'm like, that's weird. I, how did I know you were praying for me? But we're getting that over and over again, and that just is so spiritually encouraging to each one of us. We want to get to know each and every one of you. I told my wife, I said, this is really cool because this is just another church in Boone. So I'll know everybody in this church already because I know everybody in Boone because I've been here for 34 years. But I walk up, I stand up here and I'm like, who are some of these people? I don't know a lot of you. So I want to get to know you, each and every one of you. So if you don't come to me, I'll find you. I will. When I told my boys that we were going to be moving to a new church, they were nervous at first. They're five and they're ten. The idea of moving and life change, that's nervous for young men. They wanted to know, they had questions, and they wanted to know, do we have to move, our ho- do we have to, move to a new house? No, boys, it's, it's the same town, so we've got to stay in our house. Okay, that's good, that's good. They want to know, well, 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 we have friends at this new church. Well, yeah, actually, and I was able to tell them people that they already knew that were going to this church that had kids. Okay, that's good, that's good. And then, of course, the most important question to a five and a ten-year-old. Does the new church have donuts, Dad? When I explained to them that this church actually takes turns on Sunday morning bringing treats, and that there are actually some Hidden Acres people that come to church here. And I said, maybe, just maybe, Hidden Acres cookies might show up from time to time. All worries were dispelled. They were in 100%. We're there. Let's get there now. One of the first days that we were actually moving stuff into my new office, I actually brought Deacon and Axel with me. Deacon's my 10-year-old and Axel is my 5-year-old. And I brought both of them with me. And when we got here, Matt was over in the office, and he helped us move some stuff in. And, and I introduced both of my boys to him, and I said, this is Pastor Yoder. And so we went home, and Axel went running inside, and he was just so excited to announce to his mother, Mom, we went to the new church, and I went, I went and I met Master Yoda. <laughs> Close enough. Oh, over the past two weeks, we have been going through the book of Ruth, and we have looked at the hand of God and how he works all things out. And I can, I can honestly see that just over the past couple of years in my own life, just how God just seems to orchestrate and work all things out for, for his good. We've looked at how he is in control and how he works in spite of our situations. Two weeks ago, Matt looked at the character of Naomi and how God uses tragedy. And then last week, Steve Benzema was here with us, and he looked at the character of Ruth and how God uses loyalty. This morning, I will be looking at our final character we are going to be covering, and that is Boaz. And we're going to look at God's hand through integrity. And we're going to spend some time looking at biblical manhood. But even though we're going to be looking at biblical manhood, ladies, I don't want you to check out because this gives us, gives you ladies an opportunity to, not only just for you single ladies in the room, something to look towards, but you married and you um, engaged and dating women, something to kind of push your man towards. When I was growing up, I was not always known for being a, someone of integrity, 
I lied, I cheated, and I stole. And I did most of those, like most of my sins, I did those until I was in my mid-20s. When I was in my early 20s, I rented my first apartment. And we lived there for a little over a year. And then we decided we wanted to move out. So we went out, my, my friend and I, we went out and we, we looked for a new place and we found a place and we got approved. And we said, we said, well, we'll move at the end of the month. We'll just move in. And so I call up the landlord and I said, hey, it's the middle of the month. I said, hey, we're going to move out at the end of the month. I'm um, just letting you know. And he's like, well, that's not quite the way that works. You know, I'm in my early 20s, so I didn't quite understand how, how all of life worked at that time. And, of course, I didn't read the lease when I first signed it, so I didn't pay attention to that. And so he explains to me, you know, since you're past your one-year lease, you've now slipped into this 30-day, month-to-month lease. And so at the end of the month, you can call me back, and you can handwrite a, a written notice that you want to move out and give me a 30-day notice. Well, that didn't work for my friend and I because we wanted to get in the new place now, right away, and we didn't want to pay for two places. So we developed the best plan possible. We would just move out anyway, and we would just drop the keys in his mailbox. And Well, he's got, he's got our deposit, and that's a whole month's rent anyway, so he can just keep that. No big deal. I know some of you may have properties that you own and Maybe some of you are landlords, and right now you're kind of cringing because you're like, oh, my goodness, my pastor is the, the, the tenant that I despise. He's the one that I look, that I just, I look out for. I was younger. I didn't know any better. So we did that. We moved out. We dropped the keys in the box, and then, of course, we changed our phone numbers because we didn't want him to call us. And all was good in the world for the next seven years. We didn't hear from this guy in any way, shape, or form. But God has a funny way of convicting us of the sins from our past. After I got saved, I started helping out in the youth group over at the E-Free Church, and we were planning on going on this youth conference. And the youth pastor at that time tells me, we're going to bring these two girls with us from another church. Because... This church wants to send these girls with us, so these two girls are going to go with us. Okay, no big deal, and he tells me their name. And it just happens to be the daughters of my previous landlord. So I go home, and I tell Andrea, and she knew the whole story leading up to it, and I'm like, I've already felt convicted about this anyway, but now this is here, and I just feel like I have to go to him. At some point, I'm going to be standing face-to-face with him, whether it's a, a parent, leader, pastor, meeting, something, I'm going to have to stand face to face with this man and I, I feel like I need to be honest. I need to ask for forgiveness and I need to offer to pay back whatever I took from him probably with uh, interest. And she's like, okay, do that. So I am finally face to face with this guy and I say, this is what I've done. I had to remind him who I was. Well, I was like, oh, I can get out of this. He doesn't remember me. But so I reminded him who I was and I I told him the whole story, and I said, I, I want to pay you back for what I've taken from you. And, and he tells me a story about when he first got saved. And he said, you know, I had to do the same thing. I had to go back, and I had to make up for what I had taken from people, and I had to make amends for things that I had done. And, and at some point in his life, somebody had forgiven him and not made him pay back. And he goes, just like God has forgiven me so much, I forgive you, and don't worry about paying me back. 
Open your Bibles with me to Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Like I said, today we're going to be looking at the idea of what integrity is and how we can strive to be people of integrity. As we read through Ruth and we read about the man named Boaz, I want you to look at how the Bible talks about this man. Some of the some of the words that jump out as they describe him. And we're going to apply those to ourselves. Ruth chapter 2, starting at verse 1. This is now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young men who were in charge of the reaper, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So we're going to look at how God's hand was at work, bringing this whole story together. We've pointed out over the past two weeks that God's hand of sovereignty is just saturating this book. We can see that God's hand is orchestrating his plan in spite of what is going on in the nation of Israel. Naomi and Ruth come back to Naomi's hometown, and that just happens to be the town that we will find Boaz. Then we obviously see that Ruth and Naomi are struggling because they are poor widows, and Ruth is a foreigner in this land. So she goes out to glean in the fields, trying to find just enough food to survive. When Ruth set out that morning to glean in the fields, she was looking for grace, Grace is favor bestowed on someone who doesn't deserve it and that can't earn it. As a a woman, a poor widow, and an alien, Ruth was at the lowest social rung possible. She had no claims to anyone in that town. Verse 3 of chapter 2 says, As it happened, Ruth worked in Boaz's field. It It almost seems as like if it was by chance or by accident and, and in Ruth's mind, it, it probably was. She's just walking along, trying to find a decent field. And, oh, here's a, here's a field. I think I'll just glean in this one. Maybe it was the biggest field out of all of them. Maybe it was the one with the best harvest. Whatever it was, that is the one that she just happened to glean in, in her mind. But in reality, this is not by chance at all. This is by God's hand working in their lives. By providence, Ruth gleaned in the portion of field that belonged to Boaz. 
Her steps were guided by the Lord. Right here, we already see that God is drawing these couple, this couple together. Now, many of us that are married, or even some of you who are engaged or dating, if you step back and look at your own relationship, you can see that God's hand is working long before you realize it, long before you even probably get together. And that's what's going on with this couple here, too. The next step we see in God's hand is the entrance of Boaz. In verse 4, it says, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. I love the way the Bible is written. There are places in the Bible where it unfolds like the greatest story ever written. Because it is. It is as exciting as any Hollywood movie. As I read this part, I imagine some romantic comedy or some chick flick or even some action-adventure scene where the main character comes swooping in. Maybe something like this. You have Ruth minding her own business, trying to provide for her mother-in-law and herself. And then out of Noah, she looks up and, behold, Boaz. For anyone who says that the Bible is not exciting or that it is even boring, you're not reading it for all that it's worth. The Bible is filled with action, adventure, intrigue, and love stories that rival any movie. So our character, Boaz, steps on the scene. And we're going to dig deeper into who Boaz is in just a minute. But he is definitely a wealthy landowner who most likely has lots of fields and lots of workers. And he's a very busy man. But by God's hand, Boaz came to the exact field that Ruth was gleaning in that day. Then in verse 5, we see, how, see more of God's hand. As Boaz is checking in with the men of the fields, he is surveying his land. He is looking around. And this is obviously a, a good-sized field. And from the text, we can, we can assume that there are several workers and there are many young women out gleaning in the fields. So you have this big field with lots of workers and lots of women. But out of all of that, through all of that, Boaz notices Ruth. He sees her and he takes notice of her. Something about this woman strikes Boaz. It could be that she's a beautiful young woman. It could just be that she's a, a foreigner in this country. It could be that she's a random face that he's never seen before. Hey, he's lived in Bethlehem his whole life. I don't know you. You're a new face to me. But he sees her and he asks about her. He wants to know more about this woman. And of course, once he learns more about this incredibly loyal woman, he wants to talk to her. Over and over again, we see God's guiding hand bringing this couple together, bringing his plan together. 
Matt and Steve both weeks have pointed out how through this marriage and from this line of children, we will receive Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God's plan is always working to preserve a remnant and to bring about redemption, even in the worst of times and places. As we look around the world that we live in, and sometimes we can get down because of what's going on in the Middle East or what's going on in our own country or maybe what's even going on in our own town, it's important to remember that God's plan is always working to preserve a remnant and to bring about redemption even in the worst of times and places. So who is Boaz? The name Boaz itself means in him is strength. We can see that he is a well-respected man in the community. In verse 1, it says that he is a worthy man. Other translations say that he is a man of standing or a man of influence. Worthy and influence, although in part are referring to his financial well-being, they're also referring to the fact that people can count on him. Two weeks ago, Matt pointed out that people of Israel were not living up to the laws that were given to them in Leviticus. One of those laws being that field owners were supposed to leave whatever crops were left in the fields after harvesting. Now, as you can probably imagine, they didn't have 25-row combines driven by GPS in the time of Ruth. That just didn't exist. It was a much slower process with much different equipment. So harvesting fields left a fair amount of leftovers in the field. The Israelites were commanded to leave those leftovers in the field so that the poor and the needy could gather and eat. Boaz was known for actually following this law to the point that Ruth could collect enough grain to provide for Naomi and herself. And there were many other people gleaning in the same field. Boaz is the kind of man that actually comes to his field. He's checking in on his workers, making sure they have enough supplies to endure the long, hot days working in the fields of Bethlehem. Verse 4 shows us that Boaz is a godly man, concerned not only with the physical well-being of his workers, but also their spiritual well-being. His first words as he walks into the field, he says, The Lord be with you. Boaz blesses his workers. His first words could have been, how's the harvest today? What's the, what's the crop? How are we doing? He could have been concerned for the bottom line. It also could have been, hey, are you drinking enough water? It's hot today. I don't want you to pass out on me. He could have been concerned for their physical well-being. And that would have been a good thing too. But his first words, the Lord be with you. His first concern is that they are pursuing God in their daily travels. If you all want to know a man's relationship to God, it helps to find out how far God has saturated him down to the details of his everyday life. Evidently, Boaz was such a God-saturated man that his farming business and his relationship with his employees was saturated with God. He greeted them with God. And this wasn't just like a, hey, praying for you. This was a literal, the Lord bless you. Now, all of these are important, and they help us to understand the character of Boaz, 
but one of the most important aspects of Boaz we see at the end of chapter 2. Follow along as I read verses 19 through 20 at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 in the book of Ruth. It says, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Boaz is a relative of Naomi. And that, that word redeemer at the end, it's again pointing back to the Levitical laws. The law of the kinsman redeemer, we can find it in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. And briefly explained, it says that under the Old Testament law, if a man dies without having a son, his brother, um, his brother was obligated to bear a son by the widow. And that son would then be considered the heir to the dead brother's household. The purpose was to ensure family lines would not die out. It was intended to preserve land and family names. So the promised land was such a huge part of Israel that each, each tribe was allocated a, a section of the land and then each family was allocated a section of that. And they didn't want each, they didn't want families to lose out on anything. They wanted to make sure that these things stayed consistent from generation to generation. So they made sure, and that's why they had this law of the Redeemer. We saw in week one that Ruth was married to Malon, and he died. But then his only brother, Chilion, also died. There was no hope for a kinsman Redeemer in the direct family structure. That is why Naomi told these women to go back, to go back to Moab. She said, leave me. In her mind, there was no hope for them to have children. And that she just thought that the family name would just die off with her. In this case, the Redeemer passes to others in the family line, like nephews or cousins, uncles, other men. Boaz was one of those possible kinsmen redeemers. Now, the title of our series for the past three weeks has been God's Hand. And like I said at the beginning, we're going to see God's hand through the integrity of Boaz. But how does Boaz model integrity? Well, before we can look at how Boaz models integrity, we should probably define integrity. Integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. It is moral uprightness. Synonyms are honesty, honor, good character, decency, fairness, trustfulness, trustworthiness. So what are a few of the things that show us that, man, that Boaz was a man of integrity? Well, first off, he was a, a good judge of character. Verse 5 shows us how hard of a worker, or that he, was, he could see how hard of a worker Ruth was and how faithful she was to Naomi. As a man of integrity, he can spot someone who's a hard worker, and he surrounds himself with men who can be trusted. 
He doesn't wonder how the harvest is going. He doesn't have to ask the men what they have gotten done. He just knows that because he's putting the the right men in the right positions, they can be trusted. And even later on when he tells the men to take care of Ruth, he trusts that they will do as he has told them to do. He's respected by his workers, and they don't even have to question the fact that he wants them to drop extra harvest on the ground for this random woman. Now, this idea of integrity and being a judge of good character, it flows straight into the next thing that shows us his integrity, and that's that he was a provider. This book is set in a time where many people were not following the laws. But Boaz is a shining star in a time that is marked with sin and selfishness. Verses 14 through 16 of chapter 2 says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, glean, and do not rebuke her. Not only does he follow the law in making sure that the fields were not harvested completely so that the widows and poor could glean, but this woman who he knows was married to a relative, he takes extra care of. Boaz instructs the young woman to work with her, a foreigner. She was to walk with the female servants, the ones who followed immediately behind the reapers. In other words, Ruth had the the first chance at the best of the gleanings. Out of all the other women out there, she had the first picks. Boaz even instructs the workers, like I said, to pull out extra from what they're reaping, what what is actually his crop that he doesn't have to give to them. Pull out extra and throw it on the ground for her. If she was hungry or thirsty, she could refresh herself with with his workers. In fact, Boaz ate with her and personally handed her food. What a picture of God's grace. The master becomes like the servant that he might show his love to a foreigner. Ruth had no idea that Boaz had commanded his workers to be generous to her. But she believed his word and found that her needs were met. Jesus Christ came to this earth as a servant, that he might save us and make us part of his family. He has shared with us all the riches of his mercy and his love and his grace. We all are such undeserving foreigners, but yet he has adopted us as members of his family. And we have been given all of the inheritance of that, of members of his family. All of it is at our disposal. Now again, we can see the the marks of Boaz's integrity pushing one right into another. Not only is he a provider, but he is a protector. Verse 15 again says, When she arose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean 
even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And then jumping to verses 22 through 23, it says, And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. How do you think a young, beautiful woman would fare in a field by herself? And she's a foreigner, and she's not married, and she doesn't have a father at home. And as if you read the book of Judges, the last line of the book of Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So we have this young, beautiful woman in a field by herself where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In my mind, this woman is a target for any sort of sexually depraved thing to happen to her. And Boaz clearly sees this, and so does Naomi. Boaz is the kind of man and the man of integrity because he sees this woman and he protects her. He instructs his workers to protect her. He says to watch out for her. He tells his women to work with her. And Naomi sees that he's such a protector. She says, stay with her. Do not go into another field or you will be assaulted. This man will protect you. And lastly, we can see that Boaz is a man of integrity due to his pursuit of purity. We can see that in chapter 3. And Steve was here last week, and he dug deep into what is going on in chapter 3, going on on the threshing room floor. And if you, by chance, were not here with us, I encourage you to go back online. If you are not following Stonebridge on Facebook, we post all of the sermons online. So go back and, and find the sermon and listen to it to really understand what's going on here. I'm not going to discuss it in detail because Steve did such a phenomenal job. But I want to just touch on a few verses just to point out Boaz's sexual integrity. In chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, it says, At midnight, the man was startled, the man being Boaz, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether rich or poor. Okay, men. I want you to imagine with me for a minute. You wake up in the middle of a night with a young, beautiful woman at your feet. You're single. She's single. And you are living in a time where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Right? As I think about this comment, and I think about the world that we live in today, society tells us, you are the man. 
Make your own choices. Blaze the path ahead of you. You are defined by your conquest. You are told to live in the moment. I know. I lived in that world for the longest time. But just remember, you can't undo the sexual sins of your past. And sin leaves lasting marks in our lives. All sins can be forgiven by God and by people. Everything can be forgiven, but they still leave marks in our life. They leave scars. I had a few past relationships before I met Andrea, and I did all the things that society says that you should do and that unbelievers do in those past relationships. And my wife can forgive me for those past mistakes, but that doesn't change the fact that I am still in the same small town that I made those mistakes in. And it doesn't change the fact that my wife still to this day has to see some of those past relationships, sometimes on a daily basis. And it's very humbling to stand in your son's kindergarten pickup line standing across the hall from past relationships, staring them face to face. You can be forgiven, but those sins and those mistakes, they will stay with you. Boaz took the high road. He chose to pursue purity of heart and soul over living in the moment and giving in to the temptations of his fleshly desires. Many of you know the story of David and Bathsheba, and you know how David gave in to those temptations. He saw a beautiful woman and he went for it. Boaz stands as a stark contrast to that. He stands as a a pillar of a godly man that I pray that my boys and I pray that all of you men, whether married or single, I pray that we can look up to him. If Boaz is a model for being a man of integrity, we can take each of these traits that I identified and we can apply them to ourselves. And they can help us to understand what it means to be a man of integrity. Men, how do people talk about you? Whether you own your own business or you work for someone else, do people talk about you as highly as people did about Boaz? How is your pursuit of being a a picture of Christ in your workplace? Whether you work for McDonald's or you are the CEO of a company, If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to pursue integrity in your workplace. Hardworking, honest, trustworthy, reliable. These are just a few things that should be identifiable by you. At home, are you doing all that you can to protect and provide for your family? Do you speak words of love and care to them? Words that point them to to Christ and the truths that we find in the Bible? Or do you speak words that tear them down and point them away from Jesus and away from the Bible? Does your family often get the worst of you after a long day of work? The worst of you after a long day of putting on a happy Christian face for the rest of the world? I get it. It's tough. We need men in our lives who are willing to ask us tough questions. 
We need to lean into Christ. We need to lean into our wives, and we need to lean into other godly men that can hold us accountable. Ask us questions like, how is your pursuit of Jesus? What are you currently reading? How is your Bible reading? How is your prayer life? How is your pursuit of purity? We live in a world that's saturated with sex, a world that on primetime television and in every movie, we see the truths of purity being destroyed and torn down. We are told as men that we are defined by the number of women that you've been with and that it is normal and acceptable to have sex before marriage and to live with your girlfriend before you get married. We hear things like, how will you know what kind of car you want to drive if you don't at least kick the tires first? They're not referring to actually buying a car when they say that. If you are a follower of Jesus, we must hold ourselves to a higher standard. Just because society says that something is normal or acceptable or okay, what does the Bible say? 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Our bodies are a member of Christ's body. We, how can we be joined to Christ and joined to sin at the same time? Our bodies are a member of Christ's body. Jesus has bought us with a price. He died a gruesome and horrific death so that each and every one of us could be restored to a proper relationship to God. Our bodies belong to him, and we must yield our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. We need to begin each day by surrendering our lives to Christ. This is your life, Jesus. Use me for your glory. Help me to pursue purity. Help me to pursue a proper relationship with you. I can't do it on my own, God. Fill me with your spirit. In the end, I don't want any of you to walk away today and look at your life and determine that you have failed. That's not my intentions. Maybe right now you sit there and you, you start to feel more like a bozo than a Boaz. I get it. I, there's many days by the end of the day I feel like a bozo. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need the Bible. That's why we need godly men in our lives spurring us on. We need our wives and our lives spurring us on. In that moment, we need to run to Jesus. He is the picture of perfect integrity. He is the picture of holy and perfect redemption that you can only find in the gospel. As a father and as a husband, as a Christian man in this community, I am so desperately in need of the gospel each and every day, just as much as I did eight years ago when I got saved. By pursuing purity in a culture that was far from God and that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this book of Ruth stands, as, stands out as hope. Hope that we all, too, can live a life of integrity. Now, as awesome as Boaz is in this story, we have so much better of a picture of integrity, and that is Jesus. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Jesus endured every temptation that we feel every day, and he conquered them. He understands the struggle that we feel, and he wants to help us. He wants you to have life through his sacrifice. And when we talk about Boaz being a redeemer, Jesus offers the greatest form of redemption this world has ever seen. If you don't know who Jesus is and if you have never offered your life as a sacrifice to God, if you continually struggle with integrity, run to the one that can forgive you of everything. Even if you have made mistakes and wandered from God, you can come back. If you have never come to him, you can today. Ask God to forgive you of all your sins. Tell him that you cannot do it alone. Surrender your life to the one who is perfect and holy and wants to give you life. He is ready and waiting with arms open for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this this book of Ruth. I thank you for your hand of sovereignty, your hand controlling everything. In times where it feels like the world is just out of control and that we have, we just don't understand, you are in control. God, I thank you for this picture of integrity through Boaz. I pray for our men here today and for all the men in every church that they can understand what it means to be men of integrity, that they can pursue you in their workplace, that they can point their families to you, and they can pursue purity. This is an ongoing struggle. This is something that we all struggle with every day. So help us to just lean into you, lean into our wives, lean into other godly men so that we can pursue this more and more every day. Thank you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.